0: So this evening it seems um, fitting and actually important, in a way, to honor Dr. Martin Luther King uh, as part of the Dharma teachings, both because it's the day for honoring Dr. King, um, and because he was, I guess, in Japan, he would be considered a national treasure. And he was a national treasure, or is a national treasure. And because we don't have many holidays that celebrate saints. I mean, we have holidays that celebrate wars, and and so forth, and some political holidays, and politicians, and leaders. Um, And I don't mean saint in the... Sense of somebody who's a perfect being with a halo. We know that that wasn't true of him and that he had his shadow. Um, he was more like Saint Augustine who prayed, Dear Lord, please grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and even Gandhi had those same kind of struggles in his own way. So it's not that kind of sainthood. But the legacy that he left as a leader for civil rights in a racist society, when we, as a society, carry with us the history of slavery and the incredible suffering of the racism that's still part of our world, um, as a leader for justice for those who are oppressed, um, in the spirit of a bodhisattva. The Dalai Lama who takes these vows. May I be a boat for those who would cross over. May I be a medicine for all those who need healing. May I be a lamp for those in darkness. May I be a, a resting place, a port in the storm for those in difficult times. This is his morning recitation. May I offer what's needed to alleviate the suffering of all forms of beings everywhere. That this spirit was very much the Bodhisattva vision of Dr. Martin Luther King in his life. Because in spite of or in addition to the leadership in civil rights or for justice, the strongest part of his identity was the identity with that which is sacred, that which is noble, with that spirit of freedom that is undying in us as human beings. And the Buddhist tradition is filled with Saints with mixed pedigrees, like Doctor King and the rest of us, um, from Milarepa in the Tibetan Buddhism, who started his life um, as a um, as a black magician and harmed, killed a lot of people, and then became this radiant and wonderful teacher. Um, it's seen that the possibility of taking our human life and not turning it into something ideal and perfect and polished and holy in some fanciful sense, but rather taking the common clay of our humanity and allowing a nobility and a sacredness and a beauty to shine through us is a theme over and over in the Buddhist teachings. And this was certainly so in the most beautiful ways with the teachings and the life of Martin Luther King. I remember being in Washington, D.C. and standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial where he gave his I Have a Dream speech that I'm sorry I missed um, and reading the words of Abraham Lincoln uh, from the Gettysburg Address and the reminder we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women, if you will, let me add some words, thank you Lincoln, Um, are created equal. And then thinking about what it means to stand up for that with one's life, as Martin Luther King did. And what he offers to us as a society is an appeal to our own nobility, to the dignity that is in each one of us. I thought about telling a a Buddhist Jataka tale, one of the early Buddhist animal stories when the Buddha was born as the king of the banyan deer um, tonight in his honor, but I have a different story to read you, so we'll do the banyan deer another time. And this is a story you may, many of you may have heard, it's a kind of more contemporary Jataka tale, but it seems fitting and I haven't read it out loud for a long time. It comes from a, a friend of mine, a man named Terry Dobson, who was a quite successful and well-known martial artist who died a few years ago. One of the first Americans to go to Japan to study Aikido with Oshiba Sensei, with the founder of Aikido. The train clanked through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, housewives, kids in tow, old folks going shopping. And then the doors opened, and the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. Laborers' clothing he wore. He was big, drunk, and dirty. And as he came on, he swung at a woman holding a baby and sort of sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. couple. No one was harmed. Terrified, the couple ran to the end of the car, The train lurched ahead. The other passengers froze with fear. I was young then, in my 20s, in pretty good shape, been training in Aikido for several years. And as students of this martial art, we were not allowed to fight. My teacher had said, Aikido is the art of reconciliation. We study how to resolve conflict, not to start it. I tried hard. I listened to these words. I even crossed the street to avoid the punks who lounged outside the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. But in my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty (laughs) and showing how good an Aikidoist I really was. This is it, I said. People are in danger. If I don't do something, someone will get hurt. I jumped to my feet. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Ah, he roared, a foreigner, a smelly foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on to the commuter strap, lightly gave him a slow look of dismissal, and pursed my lips and blew him in an insolent kiss. I wanted him really mad before I took him down. <laughs> You're going to get a lesson, he hollered, and gathered himself for a rush at me. A fraction of a second before he could move, "'Someone shouted, "'Hey!' "'It was ear-splitting, "'Hey!' "'I remember the strange, joyous, lilting quality of it, "'as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something "'and suddenly stumbled on it, "'Hey!' "'I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. "'We both stared down a little old Japanese man well into his seventies, "'tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono, "'beaming delightedly as though he had a secret to share.' "'Come here,' the old man said in an easy vernacular beckoning to the drunk. "'Come here, talk with me,' he waved his hand. The big man followed as if on a string, planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman. "'Why the hell should I talk to you?' The drunk had his back to me. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. "'What you been drinking?' he asked, eyes sparkling with interest. (laughs) "'I've been drinking sake.' "'And it's none of your business,' the laborer bellowed, Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. "'Oh, that's wonderful,' the old man said. "'Absolutely wonderful. "'You see, I love sake.' Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out in the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench, and we watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree, and we worry about whether it'll recover from those ice storms we had last winter. It's gratifying to go out and enjoy the evening, even when it rains, he looked up at the laborer's eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fist slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too, his voice trailing off. Oh, yeah, said the old man, smiling, I'm sure you have a very wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. And very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife got no home, got no job, I'm so ashamed of myself, and tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body, and now it was my turn, standing there in my well-scrubbed, youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was, then the train arrived at my stop, As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that is a difficult predicament in your life. Sit down here, tell me all about it. And I turned my head for a last look, and the laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old guy was softly stroking his filthy matted hair. And as the train pulled away, I sat down on the bench for what I had wanted to do with muscle and force, had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the true resolution of conflict. We come to the temple, we come to Spirit Rock as a meditation center, as a temple to meditate, to quiet the mind, open the heart, to come in touch with that spirit of the old farmer, this reminder from Martin Luther King of the spirit that's possible for us, to touch in ourselves that place of fearlessness, and connectedness and love. And if you reflect on the story for a moment, you might also think about the conflicts in your own life, if you have any. (laughs) And which character in the story you're playing at the moment. And what it would really mean to meet the conflicts the difficulties that you have with a quiet mind and an open heart. Each of us, as we meditate and settle down, get still, look into our own minds, our own hearts, as the Buddha did on his night of enlightenment. We look at our own life, And we look deeply, as the Buddha did, also into the lives of the humans all around us, our connection with them. And we can see in that stillness what the Buddha saw, the possibility of tremendous happiness, innate happiness, and also the possibility and causes of great suffering. And that each of these Arise from the human heart. Another little story for you. According to an ancient Indian tale, a mouse was in constant distress because of its fear of the cat. A great yogi took pity on it and turned it into a cat. But then it became afraid of the dog. So the yogi turned it into a dog. then it came back to the yogi and said it was afraid of the wild panther outside the village. So the yogi turned it into a panther, whereupon it was full of fear of the hunters. At this point the yogi gave up, he turned it back into a mouse, saying, Nothing I do for you is going to be of any help, because you believe yourself to be a mouse. Like the Buddha, when we sit in meditation... We can see the whole range of possibilities of our identity. Sometimes we see the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, and we can feel identified like the mouse with being the victim, the powerless one, the one that everybody else has, you know, got more something of than we do. Or we can feel ourselves as the oppressor. Or even if you're not the oppressor, you can be the oppressor of yourself. You know the inner tyrant? I'm sure you've met her or him. Or we can be identified with our unworthiness or our shame or all the judgments we carry. But equally much, it is possible to release those identities and instead rest in what is called our true nature, our Buddha nature the possibility of freedom and dignity that we celebrate in the lives of Martin Luther King or Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma or Nelson Mandela. And what the Buddha taught is that this freedom of heart is possible for you, for each one of us. As Viktor Frankl wrote, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but their very presence testifies to the last and greatest of human freedoms, the freedom to choose your spirit in any given circumstance. And so here we come to sit in meditation. And as we sit, we wrestle with conflicts in our relationship. I mean, not me, but the rest of you, right? (laughs) Issues of health or career, social problems, money, anxiety, depression, desires, anger, political fears, world poverty, all that stuff comes up. And we are invited to sit and hold this whole complex of our humanity with dignity, with clarity, with compassion, and with a deep sense of faith. As Martin Luther King says, when one has faith, one knows that the contradictions of life are neither final nor ultimate. One can walk through the dark night with the radiant conviction that all things work together for good in those who love. Even the most starless night may herald the dawn of some great fulfillment. And we really learn that in an intimate way in meditation because you do struggle as you sit. I mean, you all sit so quietly. There we were for 35, 40 minutes, sitting looking like Buddhists. But I know, actually... (laughs) Even though you are a Buddha, there was also a lot else going on in there, <laughs> sleepiness and wandering and judgment and you know imaginings and conflict and restlessness and doubt and all those other things that we struggle with. And we are invited to sit and remember that it's possible to hold all of this with compassion, with dignity, with a spirit of freedom, with the kind of trust that Martin Luther King talked about, the sense of trust in a greater good. The Buddha recognized, as we all can see, that how we are in our minds and hearts affect everyone around us. The truth of interdependence, that we breathe together with the trees who recycle carbon dioxide into oxygen, that our bodies made of the minerals of the earth the toxins in the landfill and the, you know, the fresh water from the clouds mixed in our bodies. And that we affect one another spiritually, as Gandhi says, if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. I mean, I don't think anyone could have spoken the teachings of interdependence more eloquently than Martin Luther King when he said the famous words, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, we are tied in a single garment of destiny. Sometimes as we sit and meditate, we sit with the tears of the Buddha that appeared to him after his awakening and his enlightenment, as the story is told, because he looked around the world of human beings And he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, yet very often doing the things that created suffering, fueling their suffering through ignorance, through grasping, through fear, through prejudice, through conflict, through hatred. And when we sit, we carry the world with us. It's not apart from us. So sometimes the tears for the world come. Especially, I think, in this time in America, the rich, richest country in the world, there is, in some measure, a kind of cultural sadness because of the promise of justice on one hand and the bulging prisons on another and the promise of generosity and care on one hand, and the fact that we actually give way less of our gross national product to help the poorest of the world than most every other developed country. And that we know that 10% of the money that's spent on building and selling weapons to the rest of the world, 10% of the arms budget, could feed every hungry child, every hungry adult, could give medicine to everyone who was uh, needing it in the world. And that the tsunami that took place, which has so captured our imagination, that that same number of people die every week in the world, the same number, children, women, men. So there is the cultural sadness of knowing it's true, even as we live relatively well. And even though it's hard to hear, um, it wouldn't be really honorable to speak of Martin Luther King without saying it, whatever we do with it. So then the question is, how do we approach our life with a wise heart, with clear eyes. To see from the place of dignity and nobility, to be a witness to the truth, as my teacher Ajahn Chah said. Be the witness of the truth, the one who knows. And this isn't a new situation. Every human being is born into a world that has some measure of suffering and some measure of joy, the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 beauties of the world. It's always been this way, to a certain extent. The first task that's necessary as we quiet ourselves down is to see the truth and to speak the truth. The first two noble truths of the Buddha, that there is suffering in the world and that it has causes We can look at it personally, that the personal suffering in our lives grows from the causes of greed and fear and hatred. And we can see it more collectively, that our response to the pain of the world, to the insecurity and the vulnerability. Anybody not vulnerable? Anybody not insecure? And it's our human condition. That our response can either be greed and fear and putting up walls and hatred. But that's not the answer. It doesn't bring happiness. There is another way. And that is a response of dignity and compassion and love and wisdom. And we can look at it quite personally. When we meet difficulties in our life or when we touch the difficulties around us, what keeps our heart closed, bound, afraid? And what is it that reopens the heart, that brings this dignity and spirit back alive? You know. You can remember. And just as we can feel these two possibilities, you know, the mouse in one side or the dignity in the other in our own life the times we get lost and afraid angry and then the greater freedom that comes we can see it socially our responses to the world around us as a society when they are based on greed or hatred or prejudice or fear they will lead collectively to our suffering very simple and I mean, I don't mean to jump to judge all of this. It's actually very sad. It's ignorance. It's a misunderstanding. <clears throat> but we do have to question. As Dom Helder Kamara says, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. And when I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a traitor. And in particular, we're living in, in a time of war. Although it recedes in some days and weeks to the background, you know, because there's the Oscars or the Golden Globes that kind of take precedent, right? The dresses and kind of who wins things. And the tsunami, you know, and the inauguration is coming up. But we are at war. Um, and I heard on the radio about a memorial that's been made in the beach in Santa Monica every week. A group of people go out and place on the beach uh, 1,300 and however many crosses to represent each American soldier that's died in the Iraq war, fill up this whole beach. Um, Of course there are 10,000 people who've been severely injured and then if they were to put the crosses for the Iraqi women and children and men, they would have to go from Santa Monica all the way up to Malibu or some fair distance because it would be 100,000 crosses. And that's not counting Afghanistan or, for that matter, the Congo and various other places where we may not be so directly involved, but it, war is still happening. Globally... War isn't really the answer. Weapons aren't the answer. I mean, think of Terry Dobson and the old farmer. How do we solve our problems as human beings? Weapons are not the answer. Respect is. I mean, these days, we're scapegoating the Muslims. We'll find some other scapegoat later to have wars about. But that's what's happening. General Omar Bradley the world has achieved brilliance without wisdom power without conscience we know more about war than we know about peace more about killing than living ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants and yet we don't still have a department of peace I wish we did as well as a department of war So what will our response be to the difficulties of the world? Not fear, but courage is what's possible. Not clinging, but generosity and honesty. I was invited to give a a speech or a talk um, in Washington by the progressive Democrats of America Toward the end of this week, I'm not going to be able to go for some reasons. I really wish I'd been invited by the Republicans, but (laughs) not this time, you know. I can hope. I don't think that the progressive Democrats actually need me so much. Who knows? But um, we all have to reflect in some way what is our response to the difficulties in our life and in the world. First, to tell the truth, to see clearly suffering and its causes. This is how it works. Secondly, to become a model of freedom for the world. You know, when you enter a forest monastery, like the place that I practiced in Asia for a long time as a monk, you come into beautifully swept, paths underneath the great teak trees and the forests and jungles um, and a beautiful society where people treat each other with uh, dignity and care and respect where even the ants that cross the path are swept out of the way so that no one will step on them as you know as they walk around where every being's life is valued and you feel it you feel like wow what a way for people to live with one another. What a way to be together. This is the third noble truth. Not only is there suffering in the causes, greed, hatred, and delusion, but there's an end to suffering, freedom. And the Buddha said, not by caste, nor by creed, nor by race, nor birth, but by the heart alone is one noble. The nobility of a being rests on their spirit, on their virtue and integrity, on their compassion and wisdom. This is what makes a human being virtuous. This is what makes a human being noble. So there's a story of an untouchable woman, and Ananda who was the attendant to the Buddha, who was passing by a well in a village and seeing this young untouchable woman And the life of an untouchable, even still in India, can be really terrible and terrible to the point that if your shadow passes over the food of someone of a higher caste, it's thrown out and would have been that you were beaten and years ago probably that you were killed or stoned. Um, But imagine how it feels to be born as a child and be an untouchable. When you find out here you are a child, innocent little baby born in the world, and then someone says nope, you're you're an untouchable people, you know most people don't even want to see you or touch you. What that does to the spirit and here is Ananda walking by the well, Ananda, who is known for his dignity and beauty, and sees Pakati, this young untouchable woman, and says, "Would you please give me a cup of water to drink?" and she says, "Oh, monk." I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am an untouchable. And Ananda smiled and said, I ask not for your caste, but for water, please. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda the water to drink. And he thanked her and went away, but she followed him. And having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to the Blessed One and said, Help me and let me live in a place where your disciple Ananda dwells, that I may see him and care for him, for I have come to love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness and gracious compassion. Accept then the compassionate kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though others may say you are born low caste. You will be a model for noble men and noble women. Your your righteousness and beauty will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. So yes, we see the way the world is. We see the possibilities in our life and around us of greed and fear and hatred, prejudice and we also see the possibility of dignity and care and respect and freedom and become a model for the world. This is the mark of a wise heart. The antidote to racism is to bring respect and honor to those you meet. As Booker T. Washington says, don't you ever let them pull you down so low as to hate them. Whoever your them is. And everyone loves respect. And even in the meditation we do as we sit, there's a kind of offering of respect. When the thoughts of unworthiness, the pride, the fear, the loneliness, all this comes, it's as if we bow and say, yes, this too. Offer our respect to this aspect of our humanity, to sit with dignity and meet every guest that comes to the inn treat each guest honorably and not out of pity oh those poor people that are suffering you know I'm gonna help them spare you (laughs) it is only by feeling your heart that the poor will forgive you for the gifts of bread said one sage only by feeling your love that the poor will forgive you for the gifts of bread I carry with me when I teach and often show in these classes this my favorite pictures this poster of Edrin Smalovic the cellist of Sarajevo who was in the National Symphony and for the three years that Sarajevo was under siege mortars, sniper fire, rockets coming in he would take um, a folding chair and put on his tux and bring his cello and go out into the square every afternoon in Sarajevo and play his cello as if he were still in the symphony, Um, play music so that the people of Sarajevo wouldn't give up hope for three years, even though he might well have been shot. So it's not out of pity, oh, those poor, suffering people, whoever they are, but it's for the beauty of it. For the beauty of our own life, as you drive, as you do business, as you act, as you interact with one another, to bring the spirit of respect and generosity to those in front of you. Again, from Martin Luther King, where he says... Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggles, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love. To do it out of beauty to bring the spirit of respect and generosity, the instruments of love. The Buddha said, happiness is possible. You look at someone like the Dalai Lama, who has the weight of Tibet and many other sorrows of the world in his life, and he's still this joyful, happy spirit. Happiness is possible for us. And then, in the fourth noble truth, he teaches how it's possible to be happy, the noble path of happiness. Be generous. It will make you happy. Not for someone else, but for the joy of giving. To care for others as if they were a part of your family, your brothers, your sisters, your beloved daughter or son. Live with virtue. My teacher, Ajahn Chah used to love to talk about integrity and virtue. He said, this is enough of a practice. This will free your heart. If you practice practice not harming other beings with your words and your deeds, to have a reverence for life, little things, medium size, large ones, not to kill or steal or cause suffering, but to care for life around you, this practice alone will bring freedom to your heart. Dignity, bravery. How to be happy? Be generous. Live with virtue. Be respectful. First to yourself, to your own body and mind, to the unworthiness and hurt and confusion you find. Respect to those too. Moment to moment. And then to each person you meet. And a moment... People feel it. The moment you meet somebody, when I am practicing, when I remember, I do a lot of metta practice, practice of loving kindness. And when I remember as I meet people, there's this sense or feeling of um, offering, well-wishing to them. I tend not so much to look at someone's face right away. I actually try to feel the area of their heart, what's there. It's almost like I'm looking or listening to something that's not just what they present to the world. You know that mask that we have? But what's behind the mask? Maybe you could look in their eyes more deeply, but that's kind of not very polite in our society. (laughs) But you can look. You can almost look and sense and feel somehow what's the heart that's behind. You know, even if they're frazzled or angry or something, what's deep in there that's that secret beauty that Thomas Merton says? And in a moment... If we really listen, the relationship can change. And a moment's respect has a tremendous power in the in our life, in the life of another. So generosity, virtue, the offering of respect. The Buddha said if you want to be happy, learn to forgive again he beat me he abused me he threw me down or he robbed me repeat these thoughts and you live in hatred i mean this is pretty extreme isn't it gotten beaten threw, thrown down and robbed abused He beat me and abused me and threw me down and robbed me. Abandon those thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never dispels hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. Or as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to see the brave, look to those who can return love for hatred. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can forgive the teachings of Martin Luther King. If you want to be happy, generosity, live with virtue, learn to forgive. See with a wise heart, follow the Dharma, the Tao. Trust, let go, not by holding on are we happy, but by open-heartedness, by letting go, by being free. And then find for yourself a simple way to serve. Each of you already, each of you have your way to serve. To bring your heart to the world. Bring to the world your spirit, your soul forces, Martin Luther King talked about it. Find a way to reconnect with it. Your daily meditations, if you do that. Loving kindness practice. Practice doing your yoga, walking in the hills or by the ocean, tending your garden. Take time to pray, be still and to listen and find your way to give to the world. It's not given to us to be Martin Luther King or Aung San Su Kyi but it's given to us to find our way. As Martin Luther King says again, If a man sweeps streets for a living, he should sweep like Michelangelo painted, like Beethoven composed music, like Nureyev danced. Find your way. And in the worst of the suffering of the world, do what you can. As Camus says, even if we cannot prevent this from being a world where children are tortured, we can reduce the number of tortured children. And if we don't do it, who will? I've been reading a book called "Bury the Chains," which is a history. Adam Hotchild's book, <clears throat> the history of the end of slavery, an abolition movement that really started in England before it did in the U.S. Strongly, um, and what he writes about is so interesting in the in the um, overall view of the history, because 200 years ago, at the end of the 1700s, he estimates that three-quarters of all people on the face of the earth were either serfs or slaves in some fashion or other, or in bondage. Um, You know, the ones in the Americas and and the slaves in Africa, um, and the slaves that were sold to the Europeans and the Arabs and throughout the Islamic world and the Ottoman Empire. But in India and other parts of Asia, tens of millions of farm workers in outright slavery, peasants in debt bondage as bad as any harsh, as any slave bound to a plantation in, in the American South. Um, slaves among certain Native American tribes. In Russia, the majority of the population were serfs who could be bought, sold, whipped, or sent into the army at the will of their owners. As one historian puts it, freedom, not slavery, was the peculiar institution at that time. It all seemed normal, yet within 100 years, because um, there had been this history, the Greeks, the Romans, the biblical times, the Incas, the Aztecs, but within 100 years, the movement to see the abhorrence of slavery um, picked up so much support and consciousness that it was more or less outlawed around the world a hundred years later. I think about that for war. I mean, war is about as... um, Let's see, my teenage daughter's word would be stupid, (laughs) right? War is about as stupid a thing for solving problems. (laughs) as Slavery is for dealing between human beings. And what would it be like if we... Vision that within a hundred years it will no longer be used as a way to solve the problems of humanity. What steps would we need to take now? What institutions, what vision would need to happen so that we as human beings could live together in different way? Each of us has to find our way, whether it's the worst sufferings of the world or the Attending to the garden and the community that is around us. And often it will be difficult. I mean, when I think back to my teachers, Ajahn Chah, Mahasi Sayadaw, Dasa, they were all revolutionaries in their own way. And all of them were condemned for a while by their societies before they were embraced. They were accused of corrupting the teachings or doing it in a new way. Basically, They were free people in societies which had become rigid. And mystics everywhere have a bit of a hard time. You know, the church doesn't really like mystics. Whatever kind of church, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, or whatever, Um, they don't like people, you know, talking directly to the divine. They'd much rather people sort of follow the prayer book and things like that. And so... um, the kind of freedom that was taught in these monasteries was um, threatening to the monasteries and to the social order around them for a while. But then, like Martin Luther King, the teachers became eventually recognized as visionaries and they were revered by the end of their life. But it took a long time. It might be so for you or for all of us. I don't know what steps we have to take, but be faithful to what you believe in. Take the time to sit, quiet the mind, open the heart, listen to the place of wisdom, and be faithful to what you believe in. The Ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by experts. (laughs) Don't wait for the experts. And again, as Gandhi says, in nonviolence, the simplest people have a weapon which enables a child, a woman, or even a decrepit old man to resist the mightiest government successfully. If your spirit is strong, any lack of strength ceases to be a handicap. Pretty amazing to hear that. Through nonviolence, any person, the weakest of us, have a weapon which enable a child, a woman, or even a decrepit old man to resist the mightiest government successfully. If your spirit is strong, any lack of strength ceases to be a handicap. Be faithful to what you believe. Believe in the rightness and the value of human dignity, of respect. Live a life without regrets. And step back and look at it and say, what dance really matters to me? How is it that I want to live? Have I loved well? Have I cared for this world? Each in your own way. This is the offering of the Buddha, to be happy to live a really beautiful life, the beauty of the spirit, to be generous and virtuous, not because it's virtuous, but for the beauty of it, for the joy of it. And this from Laurie Anderson to end. In the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle, and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand, and it takes months And then when the map is finished, they erase it, throw the sand into the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the world. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. (laughs) And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough. I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around midtown in their new brown shoes and I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? (laughs) And so we went to this little Italian place He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, Look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was being really practical. He said, Look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, The mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open and your heart too. And one more thing, keep moving because it's a long way home. So let's sit for a moment.